and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. Click on londonguidedwalks.co.uk, podcast, and then select the episode that you fancy. And if you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. So get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Michael Bunduk, an esteemed barrister and honorary research associate in the English department at University College London. Michael has an impressive breadth of expertise in 18th century history, literature and law. He has authored a captivating book titled The Fortunes of Francis Barber, The True Story of the Enslaved Jamaican Who Became Samuel Johnson's Heir. Beyond his academic accomplishments, Michael serves as a director of Dr Johnson's House Trust, the charity responsible for owning and operating the iconic Dr Johnson's House in London, which is now converted into a small museum. And it serves as a touchpoint for scholars, history enthusiasts and anyone keen on exploring the life and times of Samuel Johnson, as well as those who lived within his orbit, most notably Francis Barber. And we'll be delving into the life of Francis Barber today, and this tale encapsulates themes of humanity, society and the complex historical ties that bind London with the wider world. It's a narrative that engages with notions of identity, social mobility and the human desire for self-determination set against the backdrop of 18th century London. So hello, Michael. Hello, and thank you very much for having me on. No, very welcome. I, when I read your book, I must admit, I had loads of questions afterwards because I just wanted to know more about him and I wanted to know more about why I'd never heard of him before. So I think maybe the, a good place to start would be to give our listeners a brief summary of the fortunes of Francis Barber. Yeah, sure. Francis Barber was born in Jamaica in about 1742 and he was born into slavery. He was brought up in slavery there for about eight years. Then he was brought to England in 1750, and he became a servant in the household of Samuel Johnson, the famous man of letters of the 18th century. He was at that time working on what was to become his great dictionary of the English language. And Johnson was living at that time in his house in Gough Square, which you can still visit today. It's a museum and well worth a visit. So Barber lived there for a number of years as part of Johnson's household. He left after a while, and I tell the story of his work in a a number of spheres. He worked for an apothecary for a couple of years as a sort of errand boy, and then, interestingly, he joined the British Navy. This is during the Seven Years' War. And he served for a couple of years in the Navy, before he returned to Johnson's household. And he lived there for much of the rest of Johnson's life, for about another 20 years. And Barber married. He married uh, a white woman called Elizabeth Ball. And I talk about that 
uh, aspect of his life in the book and uh, the reactions that different people had to this, quite a controversial thing in 18th century London. Um, there was some support, some hostility. We can talk about that. And Johnson took uh, the Barber family as they became, as the Barbers had children, into his household. And they lived in his house until Johnson died in 1784. And when he died, he made Barber effectively his heir. And Barber inherited a substantial sum of money. And again, this is a big controversy in 18th century London, which I talk about in the book. And the Barbers moved to Litchfield, which was where Johnson had come from originally. And they lived there for a number of years, and first in some comfort, but then fell into some poverty. And at one point, Francis Barber set up a school there, and he may have been the first black schoolmaster in Britain. And he ran this school for a number of years, and he died in Litchfield in 1801. And in the book, I trace the, his descendants and bring the, the story down to the present day, uh, because there are still direct descendants living in Staffordshire, uh, so that, in very brief, is the story of Francis Barber. What originally drew you to the story of Francis Barber then, and what inspired you to then write a book about it? I suppose it brought together a number of interests I have. I'm very interested in Samuel Johnson, and I'm, I have the privilege of being a trustee of the Dr Johnson's house, the, which, the charity which owns and operates his house as a museum, I knew Johnson's story was very familiar with it. And Francis Barber appears as a sort of footnote or in the text of every biography of Johnson. He's mentioned somewhere or other. He's recognised as part of the Johnson story. And I was quite interested to bring him out of the shadows a bit because Johnson is such a dominant force and a big personality. And there are so many biographies of Johnson. I was more interested in following up what Barber's story might be. And I was also partially it brought together a number of interests because I'm a barrister I'm interested in some of the legal aspects around slavery in 18th century London and its legal status the fact there were enslaved people in Britain in the 18th century as opposed to just in the colonies and overseas is something we often forget and then the other thing which really drew me to the story is that there's a very famous portrait the original was painted by Joshua Reynolds in the 1770s and it now hangs in the Menal Gallery in Houston in Texas. But there's a copy in Johnson's house of a portrait of a young black man. And there's much discussion about whether or not this may or may not be a portrait of Francis Barber. So in a way, that was my starting point into the story, was saying, who is this person who merited a portrait by Joshua Reynolds in the 18th century? And what is his story? It is a fascinating um, portrait as well. I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody uh, wanting to, to see an example of that as well. And when you're researching the book, Michael, what was it that you uncovered in terms of information about Francis's early life in Jamaica? Was there anything that surprised you there? I don't think as a general picture of I had some idea about slavery in Jamaica and in the other colonies in the 18th century, and so much has been written about it. The general picture of the appalling treatment which enslaved people experienced in living in the, and dying in forced labour, I was familiar with that as an overview. I think one aspect which I had not realised was how young people would be put to work 
there are records, and I quote some of them in the book, of children as young as three being involved in working in the fields, collecting rubbish or whatever it may be. And I think that aspect was, was new to me. Yeah, it's, I've recently read about Mary Prince. I read her autobiography. Yes. And it starts off with her being sold as a child with her younger brothers and sisters. And I was just like, hold on a minute, am I really prepared to be reading this? Uh, yes, and the living conditions as well. And I think it's bring, also bringing the uh, a bigger picture together. We're hearing stories of individuals, but this was on a, a mass scale as well, which we forget. Yes, I think one of the one of the great things about getting into a story like Francis Barber or Mary Prince is that and there were so many names and people who were involved in enslavement, and of course they're completely forgotten because mm-hmm. there are no records and so on. So just sometimes you get an individual like Barber where there is more to write about them, and it opens a window onto this whole world of enslavement, both in the colonies and then in Britain and into the lives of the black community in 18th century London. So it just shows you, gives you a whole different perspective of life in London and elsewhere at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And and how, do we know anything about how um, Samuel Johnson treated um, Francis Barber at all? Because we're talking about breaking a few prejudices and societal norms there. Do we have any information about that? We, we do know quite a bit about them. And Johnson was well known for his charitable nature and for taking in waifs and strays, really, into this household in Gough Square. So there was a whole number of people who lived there. There was Anna Williams, a blind poet. There was a, a quack doctor who was probably an alcoholic as well, who lived in the house. There were others who were working on the dictionary as well. So if you can imagine a very crowded household of people, almost all of them financially dependent on Johnson. And it should be said this was probably a bit of a two-way street because Johnson, at exactly the time when Francis Barber joined the household, Johnson's wife had died probably two weeks before that. And we know that Johnson was uh, temperamentally subject to depression at different times of his life. And certainly at this time, he's at a very low point. And this is probably the background to um, Francis Barber joining the household the connection was that um, the son of a slave owner was a friend of Samuel Johnson, and he probably suggested that the presence of a young boy in the house might lighten the mood, which was fairly gloomy at that time. So it becomes part of this household of dependence. And as I say, initially, it's very much a case of Barbara as a servant in the household, he's financially dependent and so on. But Johnson clearly takes a great interest in in him and interestingly he has him taught to read and write by a writing master that's very interesting and significant I think and quite a bit later and actually sends him to the renowned Bishop for grammar school for several years to be educated in pretty much the way in which Johnson had been educated in Litchfield much the same sort of education so you get some indication that Johnson is regarding Barbara as something more than just a servant And it develops more into an almost father-son relationship. There is still that authoritarian side. Johnson is very much the head of the household. So, for example, when Barber leaves and joins the Navy for a couple of years, Johnson pulls strings to get Barber 
pulled out of the Navy. And, and while this is Johnson probably thinking he's doing Barbara a good turn because Johnson had a horror of being at sea and being in the Navy, in fact, it was Barber's independent and free choice, and there's nothing to indicate he wanted to leave. In fact, we know he didn't want to leave. So this is Johnson acting pretty much in a the heavy-handed manner of a, a father figure and probably rather unwelcome. So there's this mix of different elements to their relationship. But then you get the aspect, as I said, when later on when Barber marries, <coughs> excuse me, um, Johnson takes his wife and then his children into the household. They become part of this extended household. And gradually, as the years pass, this enormous role reversal takes place. Johnson gets older, he gets more ill, and he becomes more dependent. And towards the end of his life, there's many of the household have left or have died off. Who's left at the end? Francis and Elizabeth Barber. Uh, and indeed their children. And if you read most of the biographies of Johnson, you have no thought that when he's living uh, towards the end of his life in this household, that there are young children running around as well. And these are Francis and Elizabeth Barber's children. And Johnson, we know, loved children. It's just an aspect that's been overlooked. So you get this role reversal where where Francis and Elizabeth become the people who are looking after Johnson. And then, in a sense, perhaps the roles reverse again when Johnson dies and he leaves Barber sufficient money for him to be independent, making him his heir. So we've got this developing relationship, and it's very interesting to trace all these different aspects of it and how it changes over what's really a long period of time. And it's from 1752 when Johnson and Barber meet to 1784 when Johnson dies. So it's a long time that that uh, they're living together apart from those periods when Barbara is away uh, in the Navy or, or at school earlier on. Hmm. You named the book The Fortunes of Francis Barber. So can, can you speak about the significance of the term fortunes in this context? Yes, I rather like the ambiguity in the title. I, mean, I was obviously thinking of fortunes in both senses. So in one sense... It's simply talking about fortunes in the sense of what happened to him, the good and the bad. So telling the story of his life. But in the other, also it was the fortune in the sense of money, the inheritance, and how he went from abject enslavement in Jamaica to later on in his life, the substantial inheritance for Johnson. And I rather like that play between the two senses of fortunes in the title. Yeah, it, it's intriguing, really, with, with Barber becoming Johnson's heir. Obviously, that wasn't the in, original intention. But as you were mentioning about Johnson, giving him opportunity to be literate, to have the tools to be able to stand on your own two feet and earn an income more than just a physical job, that's really quite admirable and interesting there. But what about how it turned from... master-servant relationship to becoming family? Yes, I think it did come back to this fact that it's such a long time they're actually living in the same household. It's a long developing relationship, starting when Barbara is a very young boy, almost straight out of enslavement in Jamaica, and then through the years him growing up, him having these various experiences of work, 
the apothecary, the Navy, education and so on, and marriage. And I suppose especially after the marriage and after they'd had children, then by this time Barbara is very much an adult, obviously. And so the dynamic of the relationship has changed and it becomes much more one of friendship. So it's not one of equals. Johnson is always, there's always an element of the father figure in him. But nonetheless, there is much more that Barber brings to Johnson than he had as a very young, a young boy in the household. Um, and then this culminates in this, this extraordinary legacy. So when Johnson dies, he uh, leaves him an annuity, which is about, the annuity was £70 a year. And by it's hard to get points of comparison to modern money, but the easiest way to to work out what that is is when he served in the navy, he was paid eleven pounds a year. So now he's got seventy pounds a year as an annuity. And on top of that, when Johnson's possessions and effects and so on were sold, Barber gets about fifteen hundred pounds. So in comparison with eleven pounds a year, we're talking about very significant sums of money sufficient certainly it should have been to make Barber and his family secure for the rest of their life what happens then to when you you mentioned about him setting up a school and uh, finding times being hard where had the money gone it's an interesting question I'm not quite sure I've been able to answer that he moved to Litchfield so about Johnson died in 1784 and about three years later Francis and Elizabeth and their children move to Litchfield, which was Johnson's home where he'd been born and brought up and was a very well-known name. And Johnson had visited there with Barber, so Barber was already known there. And it had been Johnson's recommendation that this was what Barber should do after Johnson had died. And I think Johnson had in mind that Barber might find support there because of the people who knew Johnson, and there would be people who were willing to assist him if necessary. Uh, it was obviously a cheaper place to live um, than London. And it was also perhaps an element of being a bit out of harm's way, there'd be less temptation to dissipate money and so on. So I think he thought it would be better for Barber from those points of view. And initially, that was right. I mean, he moved there and seems to have been accepted as a fairly respectable and welcome member of the community. It's telling, I think, that he was elected by the local residents a dozener, so he served as a minor local official for a while. But the very fact they were willing to vote him on suggests he was held in some respect. But there are signs, there were a couple of people have said he was improvident, was the word they used, with money. So somehow he's spending a lot of money, there are certainly big medical bills. The family don't have good health, and he complains in a number of letters about spending so much money on apothecaries. So some of the money goes there. But exactly how he got through quite so, such a lot of money, we don't really know, and especially as the annuity should have lasted for the rest of his life. And I think he almost certainly cashed that in and spent it in some way. But certainly he managed to work through the money and towards the end of the 18th century he's living in some poverty 
And he and his wife took to selling off mementos of Johnson, which collectors were interested in buying just to get some money to live on. Sad story, really. Hmm. So Johnson's other contemporaries, so Joshua Reynolds, we've nodded to, and also Oliver Goldsmith, they all had interactions with Barber. So can you delve into those relationships? We know a little, not much. Uh, Reynolds is perhaps the more interesting. Uh, Reynolds, we know a bit about his attitude to issues of colour and so he wrote about the equality of black and white people and later became an abolitionist. This is when the abolitionist, the formal abolitionist movement began towards the end of the 18th century. And we do, of course, know that he painted this famous portrait of a young black man who may or may not be Francis Barber. It may be Joshua Reynolds' own servant. We know he had a black servant, and we also know from contemporary records that he painted him on a number of occasions. And in the book, I talk about the arguments whether for whether it is Barber or whether it's not. And the position is rather inconclusive. But I think what you can say is that it is a fantastic portrait and very striking because it is, unlike so many portraits of the time which have a black person in them, and many contemporary pictures, that black person will be a servant in the background holding a horse or carrying some goods or something like that. This is not. This is a portrait of a young black man. It's quite formal. It's a figure of some some nobility almost. It's painted in much the same way that Reynolds would have painted any nobleman or, or, or some other uh, political figure or whatever. And it's very striking. And it's a wonderful portrait. So whether or not it's a Francis Barber, we do know it's of a young black man who lived in London in the 1770s. And it's a very striking portrait. And the copy which hangs in Dr. Johnson's house now is one of their proudest possessions there, I think. And what are some of the ways do you think that Barber influenced Johnson's work and views, particularly concerning slavery? I think Johnson's views on slavery had developed. He was certainly very opposed to slavery from, and you can see this in his writing from as early as the 1740s. So this is before, obviously before he met Barbara in 1752. And it comes out on a number of occasions um, in his writing and also in his conversations recorded by um, a number of his contemporaries, and especially in James Boswell's Great Life of Johnson. So we know, in general, um, Johnson's attitudes to slavery. But what I think we can say is that the arrival of Francis Barber in his household sharpens his thinking, I think, and sharpens that opposition. Because, of course, for the first time, he has first-hand evidence of what it means to be enslaved. He can and presumably does talk to Francis Barber about his experiences as an enslaved person. And I think we can see that influences writing in that period of the 1750s, the later 1750s after Barber is in his household. Johnson writing more about 
the issue of slavery. So I think to that extent, the very fact of somebody who knew what it was like, who could tell Johnson this is the real experience, as opposed to Johnson's knowledge, which otherwise was derived, of course, from reading, mm-hmm. from travel accounts especially, and from histories and so on. So it had all been previously secondhand. Uh, and now he is somebody living in this household who has been born and brought up in slavery. So it's a, clearly a, a very vivid force, and I think that's why you can see Johnson addressing the subject more in the 1750s. And, and how has Barber's story been remembered or indeed forgotten in both Jamaican and British histories? I'm not sure that I know in Jamaica whether there's been any particular, any memory or record of Barber um, preserved there. I think it has been preserved in Britain and perhaps more in recent years. I think a couple of reasons for this, partially, generally, there's much more interest in black British history. And there have been television series, especially David Olishoga's series, and the accompanying book. And there have been a number of really good books, like Gretchen Gutzina's book recently reissued about Black Britain. So there's more known generally about Black British history, and that in itself has generated more interest in Black British history. And also the other aspect is the more people are interested in tracing their roots. Um, And that has been something that's developed very much in recent years. And so I think bringing those things together, people are much more interested in black British history and how it's affected modern day Britain and how it's become part of the population. They've become much more aware of the fact that there was a black community in 18th century London. So you still occasionally get people thinking that black history began with the Windrush. It began long before that. And I think that those two things brought together have created more interest in Barber. Certainly in Litchfield, I think there's more interest in him. Just recently, a plaque was unveiled on Stowe Street, where he lived in Litchfield to mark his presence there. And there's a plan to put a plaque on the house in Gough Square, where he lived here. And another interesting development from a London point of view is that just recently, there's an office block in Gough Square, which is now occupied by a firm of solicitors, Goodman Ray, and they recently renamed the block Francis Barber House. So if you go into Gough Square now to visit Dr Johnson's house, you can also take a look at Francis Barber House, just facing it on the other side of the square. So there are all these kind of developments of people wanting to recognise the aspect of his history. And I suppose from my point of view, from writing the book, I had the interesting experience just recently. I got an email from somebody who was is in Chicago who wrote to me and said, I think I might be a descendant of Francis Barber. And I looked into it a bit, and sure enough, they were, because we knew that one of Francis Barber's descendants had emigrated to the USA, and this family in Chicago were able to trace their family roots back to that person. And similarly, in England... Francis Barber has direct descendants, father to son, and still living in Staffordshire. So those links are still here. And perhaps those links into the population, they're almost more important than the plaques and the history books because those are living links. And it's fascinating 
to talk to somebody like Cedric Barger, Barber, who I've met on a number of occasions, who is his direct descendant and is fascinated by this link, a link with the past. And how do you think the story of Francis Barber challenges or perhaps adds to our understanding of the 18th century London and society? I think I come back to this reminder of the black community in 18th century London. There's lots of other evidence of that. There are obviously a number of very well-known figures like Alaudet Guiana and Ignatius and, and others who, whose names are known and there are biographies of them and so on. And I think Francis Barber's story is another one that contributes to that bigger picture uh, of what was going on in London and in Britain generally in the 18th century. And we get that broader picture of society than perhaps uh, we had before. And I think also it, the idea of there being enslaved people in Britain, and that, when I talk to people about the book, many of them, that was a new thing. I think everybody thinks of slavery as something that happened over there. It was something in the West Indies or in the uh, colonies on the American mainland and not something, there weren't people who were enslaved walking down the Strand or Fleet Street. There were. And I think it's a reminder of that aspect as well. And that, that whole story of how there were still people who were of slave status here, that's another interesting and important aspect, I think, that comes out of the story. And are there any other intriguing characters of London's history you're considering writing about in the future? There are, and I'm working on a book at the moment on Granville Sharp, and he was the first British abolitionist, so it taps into the same story. He was very much involved in, he knew Johnson, but he became active in abolition. This is about 20 years before there's a formal abolition movement, 20 mm -hmm. years before um, William Wilberforce and so on, he became a one-man campaign to get slavery declared illegal in the courts and brought a whole series of cases culminating in the Somerset case in 1772 in an attempt to get slavery declared illegal. So he's a very interesting person and his story connects in many ways into Francis Barber's story. They're from a rather different perspective. Well, it's good to get different angles though, isn't it? Yeah, maybe you can come on uh, another episode and talk about him then. I hope so. That'd be a great pleasure. Michael, that has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. And hopefully people have learned a little bit about Francis Barber and also have been inspired to learn a little bit more. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for now. Until next time.